Welcome to the My Money, My Lifestyle podcast, where we discuss all things money. Because whether or not we like it, money matters. I'm your host, Maya Fisher-French, and today my guest is financial planner Van Anchoos, who's just written a very important book entitled To 100 and Beyond. And if you think about it, it, it absolutely is probably the biggest structural or fundamental issue facing people. Because, you know, you can get all the other stuff right. You can develop a very nice plan. You can do very nice tax savings, all those sort of things. But if you underestimated how long you're going to live for, it means you might fall 10, 15, 20 years short of the plan you created. Okay, so we've heard a lot about how we're all living longer. Um, and I must tell you that, that when you tell someone that they're going to live to 100, for some people that is really exciting, but for others it is terrifying. Or like my mother says, you're just old for a very long time. So welcome, Vainant, because that's exactly what your book is all about. It's about living to this, you know, this number 100. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Maya. And I think, I mean, we'll probably kick off talking about some of it, but uh, you have to start off on the facts. You know, people just are living longer. People just tend to not to want to believe it. Um, you, you know, so we sort of start off in just reality of, of the numbers. Um, and I deal with people on a daily basis, and they just don't believe that they're going to get over 80 or so. And it's happening. It's happening a lot more. Well, talking about that, you and I were trying to work out how long we've known each other. Um, and and I, I think we worked out it's been sort of over 22 years when you when I was working at BGM and stockbroking business. And uh, so, <laughs> so we, you know, it, time passes very, very quickly. And, and you've been in this industry for, you know, many years, probably more than 22 years, if you knew me 22 years ago. And, and do you think that this longevity trend is the biggest issue facing financial planning at the moment? Um, if you think about it, it, it absolutely is probably the biggest structural or fundamental issue facing people. Because, you know, you can get all the other stuff right. You can develop a very nice plan. You can do very nice tax savings, all those sort of things. But if you underestimated how long you're going to live for, it means you might fall 10, 15, 20 years short of the plan you created. Mm -hmm. So I think it's one of the biggest issues. And I also think it's probably one of the biggest um, underestimated or misunderstood issues around financial planning and retirement. So, I, you know, when I was going through the book, and just by the way, for those on the video version of this, this is the book, um, I think that's the number. You know, you spoke about people not believing how long they were going to live for. And then I was looking at the South African statistics. And what really struck me is, yes, you know, not all South Africans are going to live uh, till 100 because there's obviously a lot of inequality in South Africa. But when you reach the age of 65, you you you're, you're going to live a long time in other words you've missed you, you've crossed that first hurdle of of longevity and this number really struck me that you know if you are currently 65 um as a female which is i am i'm not 65 yet but <laughs> i'm 65 i'm going to live 22 years into you know into retirement i'm going to get to nearly 90 um and if you're currently, yeah, I mean, so talk a little bit about how these numbers matter so that the longer you live, the longer you're going to live. Yeah, I think before we get there, it's called survival bias. It's probably good, you know, when I talk to people about it, you talk to, to clients, they're planning, they're saying, but Vaina, who gets to these numbers? Who gets to this 84 or 87 or so? And it's important to note, it's, it's actually a pretty good science. You know, you mentioned in South Africa, 
not everybody's going to get to the numbers we mentioned, but most of the people that we talk to as part of what you call the insured population, um, so be it middle income or high income people, high income earners, um, and the insurance industry, their job is to understand how long people live. You know, so if you look at this data that's based on insurance industry, their experience, and when they see people dying and claiming on insurance policies. Um, so, so the numbers are pretty decent. You, you, you can trust the numbers. And if you look at it, as you say, you know, if you're a first, first thing, females live a bit longer than men, you know, might be part of the genes or part of how we grew up, but on average, females live um, kind of three to four years longer than what men live up to. And if you're 65, you know, if you're male, you're going to live up to 82. If you're female, you're going to live up to 87. And then that kind of survival bias kicks in. The longer you live, the longer they expect you to live because you've, you've outlived some challenges. You know, so by the time you get to 85, as example, so if you're 85, you're expected to live up to 91 as a male. That's almost 10 years longer than when you were 65. And if you're female, you're expected to live up to 92. Um, so, so the longer you live, the longer the expectation is that you're going to, you're going to continue surviving, uh, the survival bias, that they call it. And the thing that I find, you know, you said so many people don't believe they're going to live that long because they look at their parents. Yet people are really, and especially in South Africa, where perhaps you are living a better life, you've had better access to health care than your parents may have had when they were young. That, that's definitely something I see a bias. People really honestly don't believe that they're going to, to so significantly um, outlive, outlive their parents. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. That's why I say it's always good to go back to the numbers and to, to, to explain the, the numbers. The, the reality is actually quite shocking. You know, if you look at the mortality data, because they do it global, the WEF, the World Health Organization does it, insurance companies do it, United Nations do it, there, there's a host of data available. All the numbers you look at kind of says over the last 100 years, life expectancy has increased by 25 years. And I think one just has to dwell on that for a second. You know, if you were born 100 years back, like some, some grannies, their life expectancy was 25 years less than today. So that, that provides the quantum of how life expectancy is increasing. Um, so, so I think people really have to grasp, irrespective of if you're going to get to 100, the reality is probably you're going to live longer and what you expected, and that what uh, your mom and dad um, lived. Well, my mom's still going strong at 82, so if I'm going to outlive her, it's, I'm going to be here for a long time. But one yeah. of the things also, of course, that longevity is doing um, is, is this growth in the sandwich generation, which you also cover in your, in your book. Um, and the sandwich generation is, just to explain to, to listeners, this idea that on one hand, you've got children staying at home longer because they, they, they're struggling to get work or they just, I don't know what, um, but they're not leaving home quite so quickly. And um, then you've got this aging parents. So I know people going into retirement who have parents still alive. So they are entering retirement often with still sort of supporting their children and then their parents who never expected to live this long and who haven't funded for it. So what, to what extent do you think, this longevity is having on this that this pressure of the sandwich generation. Um, I think it's it's got an absolute massive impact. The people that do the most research on that's all mutual, and from their estimates, about forty three percent of their respondents are stuck in the sandwich generation, which means they have either kids 
and or um, parents still, still at home. So if you think about it, you know, most plans, I don't come across many clients who plan for looking after their kids into their 30s and who I haven't across any, come across anybody that actually planned for looking after mom and dad when they retire. And quite correctly, as you say, you know, I see it a lot as well. You know, people going into retirement and we still need to think and provide for um, their parents. You know, if they pass, how do we provide for them? You know, what's the right product instruction? So I think it's got a massive impact. If you think about younger people, um, it probably means they need to consider the likelihood of their kids staying at home a lot longer, mom and dad being at home a lot longer. It requires uh, tough family conversations. You know, if you need to provide for your own, own retirement, you need to have open and frank conversations with, with kids, with the grandparents, grandparents, with family, and what do you do to support to be sure you keep your retirement plan alive. Um, so I think it's a lot of people are caught in it. A lot of people didn't plan for it. Um, and it, it does result often, I think, in, in, in tough, but the right conversations now to support kids and parents um, that still stay home. And, and I think, you know, what happens, Van Ant, in those conversations is, is, is we're trying to talk about a future that it doesn't feel as real as today. So your child needs something today. Your elderly parents need something today. So you don't you, you cash in the future because the future is uncertain, and I think that is that trade off that that people are consistently making. Um, and I want to get to preservation and the impact of preservation on on meeting those goals. But before I get there, I think the other thing is you, you know you posed this question and and talking about living till one hundred, um, you posed the question is when should I retire? And you said this is the wrong question, actually, to be asking. Um, you know, what, you know, what will my retirement look at 60, but, you know, what should it, and, and, and is that the solution? Because let's be honest, who has enough money at 60 to live to a hundred supporting children and elderly parents? I'm not sure, you know, maybe there's a handful of people who won the lotto or made lots of money in Bitcoin or something. Most, for most people, this is not a reality. No, I think you're spot on. You know, if you, as I say, most people don't even plan for that, so it's not factored into their plans and by themselves, their retirement plans often don't work. Um, but I think just back to your questions, as you say, you know, the, the right questions to be asking is not about what happens at 65 or whatever. The right questions to ask is, what does my life look like after 60 or 65? And I think for so long, you know, it's part of the industry and the the advertising and jargon at 65 you see people sitting on the beach retired and retirement starts and i think you've got to it's not just thinking you know you've seen people are rethinking that you know what, what happens after 65 and i do kind of position and saying the starting point is sketching your next life chapters so that's first sitting down thinking about it talking to a spouse talking to a partner talking to friends and saying what am i going to do after 60 or 65 and that might be very different for different people. You know, it might involve many people, you know, increasingly continue to work. You know, I, I use the example in the book of old Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, you know, the sort of investment gurus. They're both 90 and they can afford to retire. They just don't want to. You, you know, increasingly you see people that want to continue working, they just carry on. So you might continue to work, you might want to travel a bit, uh, you might, might want to start a side hustle or hobby. But the first question is, what are you going to do after 60, 65? And, and I always do say, think about it in multiple chapters, you know, because the first chapter you might be busy, then you might slow down or you might start traveling. And once you've got that sorted out, then you can start saying, what financial plan 
do I need to support the life plan after 60 or 65? And I think what we're also seeing is that this realization that we're going to be working longer, partly for for financial reasons, but also because we want to, because we have better health than we would than our parents did at this age. So you're reaching 60, 65, you feel still very young and you still want to contribute, but you don't want to contribute at the rate that you were. Um, so it is about finding those, the, the late 50s for me, um, I'm not there yet, but I'm sure I get there, is about looking and saying, okay, how do I start exiting my high-powered or, you know, that kind of environment where I'm working every hour of the day, you know, six days a week, and how do I transfer that into something that's more manageable? So I think they say working less for longer um, and, and finding that transition. But that happens early. That happens before you're 60. You've got to start making a lot of those, like you said, the planning and thinking around it before then. Yeah, and I think it's fun. And what's going to start thinking about it, early enough, you know, maybe you're not going to have the perfect idea at 30 or 40, but, you know, as you're in your 40s and 50s, you have an idea and saying what I want to do at 65, and you can start planning for it. But it's not about sitting down, which normally happens. You know, we deal extensively in the retirement market, and we help people with their planning just before retirement, you know, just to some of the clients we work with. And they start thinking about it six months before retirement. You know, it's not something to start thinking about six months before you need to weigh before that, start thinking about what does that next chapter look like. And I just want to reinforce one of your points in, in that transition. I think it's important to know part of that transition might be continuing to work and not even saving anything after you, you, you continue working, but not saving anymore. And there's two important parts that, you know, if you can continue doing something and leave your pension, your pension grows. You know, people's pension is their biggest asset. If it's a few million rand, it grows a lot, um, just given the size. And you're planning for a shorter period. So there's a dual-edge benefit. If you can leave your pension a bit by doing something else, um, it grows and you're planning for a shorter period. It's got a massive financial impact. I can't remember the numbers, but I think it, 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 I think if you delay retirement by five years, the kick is about 30% in your income. Um, so it's quite significant. So literally you get to a point and if, if it says, listen, you can't retire now, but in another five years, you, you probably could if you, you know, if, if you were able to, you know, to work a little bit further. So, so at least that's, so, so that we're talking to people now coming up to retirement who are saying, oh my goodness, I've left it too late. Okay. Start thinking about working less for longer, but let's go back to the young person because then this is the one everyone does. They work till they're about 30 they build up a little bit of a pension fund, they change jobs, they cash it in. And the mm-hmm. impact on that, the numbers are breathtaking. You've got an example in your, in your book of that. Um, I think Peter and Seema uses two different scenarios. One who, who cashes in um, his retirement and the other, I think he cashed in at 45. I think that was the example. And the other who doesn't. And the difference was, I mean, same, I think you worked on the same income, same contributions, all the rest of it. I mean, one comes out with 18 million, one, 8 million in retirement at 65, the other with 8 million. And yeah. I can stand on my head, I can scream and I can yell, but people for some reason think that paying off their debt, cashing in and paying off debt is a better investment. Explain to them why it is not. Um, I think there's kind of two questions there interrelated. Let's try and address both of them. So I think um, the preserving is, 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 is a, a massive challenge for the whole industry. You know, if you look at the numbers, when people change jobs, they normally take the money and do something with it. 
Um, and I do mention in the book, my very first job, I did the same. You know, I, I left the job, I took the money. I think I bought a hi-fi or something, can't even remember what I did. But that money's lost, you know, it's for always lost because you used it for a lifestyle expense or something. And if you look at the example in the book, yes, it's absolutely astounding. If you can just preserve that money when you change jobs, um, it probably solves 80% of the problem. You know, by preserving your assets for most people, they would be fine at retirement. So it has an absolutely fundamental impact. Um, the reason why it's better than, in a, or the, the reason why it's a good thing to do is because normally people actually don't do the responsible thing. They actually don't pay off the debt. You know, they might actually buy the high fives I did my first job, which I sort of mentioned is one of my big mistakes and learnings. Or they use it for a holiday or they use it for other lifestyle expenses. So normally you can't even show for it. Mm. If you compare it to paying off debt, um, the, the very fact that retirement assets still grow tax-free and you get tax contributions for it, and the fact that you're supposed to not touch it um, does make it one of the best investments available. So on the after-tax basis, later on the book, I also do the examples analysis. Because of the tax breaks that you get in retirement annuities, they do remain one of the best investments because you get a guaranteed return from SARS that grows tax-free. And, you know, also what, what people just don't realize is that compounding effect. And, you know, you, you compounding isn't, you know, I think people just in the beginning, oh, 100,000 Rand doesn't sound like a lot of money. But 100 goes to 200, 200 goes to 400, four, if you're doubling, 400 goes to 800. So it's that, that massive compounding. And when you start looking at that, um, and the idea for me is that, you know, if you've got debt, you can use cash flow, you know, cut down. And I see this a lot. People don't want to cut lifestyle. They don't want to make the hard choices. And believe you me, Bernard, I've been here. I've also did my cashing and I did all, in fact, what I did we were talking about BGM where you and I met. Um, I, when I left there, I used my money to buy a, a London pie franchise. Yeah. Well, there's no London pie anymore. I was completely ripped off from the franchise. And I worked out that if I'd left that money invested, it would probably be about six, 700,000 rand today. So, so that's yeah. the other thing people do. They think, let me take my pension and start a small business with it or buy into a franchise with it. And that also comes with a whole lot of pitfalls. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, as you say, it's going to be so careful. Firstly, what you do when you switch jobs, you know, to be sure. Um, it was meant for a time and try and keep that bit of money, let it grow. You know, it goes back to an early example of, you know, just before a time, that money is accumulated to normally a few million rands. But back in your compounding thing, on every million, if it grows by 10%, it's 100,000 rand. Mm-hmm. So by leaving it, you're allowed to become a million rand and you allow that million to in the next year grow by 60,000 or 100,000 rand. Um, and then at retirement, yeah, one needs to be very careful not to cash it in and to try after 65 years of life, then start a business. Absolutely start something, you know, start a hobby or something else, but not your full pension. You know, start something that you can build, start off small, uh, but don't risk your full pension for, uh, for your retirement. Uh, yeah, and I, it is, it's, a, it's something a lot of people do because they panic. They see, they get to retirement, they don't have enough money and they think, well, I can't live on this, so let me cash it in and start a business. And I have to tell you, I don't know many people who've been successful at that. I, I hear more horror stories than success stories, unless, of course, you're going into something that you're an expert in. Um, but then if you're an expert in something, you can often work on the consulting side. You don't always have to have capital 
to start it. Um, so I think there, yeah, there, there are ways of using your skills that you can that you can do. Sorry, latches on to another point my, towards the end, which is at a time when people become really desperate and they actually either start a business or they listen to someone else's scheme or scam. So, so one needs to be really careful of either one of those. You know, I'd say for probably everyone starting a business, three or four people fall for an investment scam. You know, be it a crypto scam, a property scheme, a purely fraudulent scheme. And I sort of mentioned the numbers that's been lost in the SA2 schemes. So be careful for both, either starting your business, but probably even more people in fall for that scam because they just can't afford to retire. They want an income or growth that's slightly better than the market. And if it's better than what's available, there's risk. And it's normally um, some sort of scheme. So then, as you know, obviously, as a financial journalist, I get a lot of the scams uh, are highlighted to me. People contact me. And it's always people who didn't have enough money when they got to retirement, always. Um, They become so much more vulnerable. And I think so that just goes back to start early, preserve. But if you or, you know, just continue to work a little bit longer these because you are you do become desperate and you become so panicky that you are very vulnerable to to these um, investment scams and yeah it is it, it's the bane of my life um, investment scams and I can imagine for you as well but what I'm going to end I want to end on this podcast with a question I had from a reader and it was such a good question because I think it's a lot that people don't understand they come to retirement and she said to me my friends tell me that I'm crazy to live off my cash investments. They, share, they say I should have investments. So she's obviously got most of her money in cash, in fixed deposit. She's living off the interest, and that's good. But now she says, but my friends are telling me they've got investment portfolios, and they're telling me they're not paying tax, and this is better investment. Why? And I think this comes down to the decisions you make at retirement about what to do with that lump sum. And it's probably both like the fact that many people are or believe that putting your money in a bank is still a good investment and that you get growth with that. So I think one's going to start with the fundamentals. You know, if you stay in cash, you get paid interest. Um, interest does not provide growing returns over time. So you need your money to grow to buy more stuff next year or the year after that. Um, And you can only do that by investing into things that actually grow ahead of inflation. What we know those sort of things are is normally shares and equities or balanced portfolios that can outperform inflation over time. So very simply, if you put your money, let's say a million rand, just to make it simple again, if you put, put a million rand into the bank today and you get interest on that, the interest is likely to be keeping pace with inflation. In 10 years' time, you can buy goods less than the value of a million rand because the cost of goods has gone up and your investment is not kept pace with that cost of goods increasing. So it's important to realize um, fixed income money market cash pays you interest. That does not outperform inflation over time. You need your money to do better than inflation so that your buying power can grow. And you can only do that by investing into equities, baskets of equities or balance funds that can actually outperform inflation. And I think also, obviously, the whole tax thing where she's saying, but they're not paying tax. And then there's a whole um, now, of course, it, 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 it differentiates. You've got to decide what, who, who are these people. If they have living annuities, for example, and they're drawing down their living annuity, there's tax payable. Um, but within the, obviously, within the fund, they're not paying tax, but on any income or certain amount, income above their tax threshold. But, you know, mm-hmm. I look at my mom, for example. So my mom never had a, 
uh, retirement um, pension fund. So her, her assets are discretionary and she sits in a share portfolio. And she lives off primarily the dividends. Um, and that's, again, I, I suspect I said to this woman, I think your friends are all investing in dividend portfolios. But that's another thing. It can be more, um, there are ways to spread your tax risk um, as in retirement. You don't yeah. have to have it all sitting in cash. You don't have to have it all in shares. You you know, you can play that um, the tax game a little bit as well because tax is definitely the big one retirees get very upset about. Yeah, it's, it's actually getting real scary. I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues just before we came in for this discussion. I said to him, you know, I've come across so many clients that sit with 10 million rand at retirement, fully taxable versus where they planned well. Now, the disadvantage if you have 10 million rand all stuck in an RA or a pension is the income on all of that's taxable. You're paying 25% tax. If you structure your income more effectively way before retirement again, We've got a retirement and year to your pension, plus you're building up a dividend portfolio, uh, plus you maybe have some normal unit trusts and a bit of cash as well. Um, after retirement, your tax is going to be significantly less. But but again, that example starts, you know, way before retirement, you've got to say, what should my income look like after retirement? And I think if you look at it, I was actually doing research over the weekend, writing an article on the weekend on exactly this item is most planning happens planning for retirement, not planning and saying after retirement, there's another 30 years, what's the consequences for my decision that I made before retirement, after retirement? You know, and if you only invested into retirement into your pension, that's also not the right thing because all your income after retirement is taxable. Mm-hmm. So you've got to think about your example by those fine post-retirement between different things. Um, dividends is a lot more tax effective than, than what... Um, Retirement funds are discretionary normal unit trust or ETFs is a lot more tax effective because you're repurchasing capital versus being just in a hundred percent taxable investment. So, so it's such an important point to do that planning again way before retirement. And, and I normally get stuck at retirement with people that approach them two different ways. And, and the one is perfect, the other one on the same capital, the tax just um, erodes income into retirement. Maybe I should ask you a little bit of a controversial question here. Not, it's not controversial, I think, for you and me, but it may be for many financial planners or advisors. Is, is using a tax-free savings account as opposed to an RA as your top-up? So for many people, they have a company pension fund. Um, they want to save more for retirement, you know, and they, they often land up into RAs, which are part of the, the taxable pension on retirement. You know, to what extent should they first consider something like a tax-free savings account, which is post Posting a post tax, obviously on your salary, but you get to retirement and you can really use that as part of your tax structuring because you withdraw it tax free. Yeah, um, I, I think you're absolutely spot on, and as you say, probably is still a controversial issue. Um, but I think you know if you run the numbers and you actually do the numbers not up to retirement, but even after retirement, you take into account income tax after retirement. The right combination is exactly that. It's a combination of retirement annuities or pension funds and definitely including tax-free savings and even after tax-free savings, normal discretionary savings. And the the reason for that is very simple. You know, before retirement, your retirement annuity, only the deductions are deductible against your tax. So for a a high tax payer, you might reduce your tax rate by 10% or so. Um, but that income becomes fully taxable after retirement. So you're going to pay 25 or 30% tax. If you also use tax-free savings and discretionary savings, you can reduce your tax rate to, on numbers I worked on, to 5% for the same affluent client from 25 by using the RA. So definitely it's the right thing to do to use 
tax-free savings and discretionary as well. And I think the reason it's misunderstood because people do the planning and calculations up to retirement, the benefit up to retirement. They don't do the analysis of saying what happens after retirement, and, and that's what's going to be taken into account. It takes after retirement. And it's day duty and executive fees and all that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, so, I mean, the secret to success is planning. I've always said that. <laughs> so thanks very much, uh, Vedant. And I, I really, you know, buy this book, um, Top 100 and Beyond. A lot of, exactly a lot of what we've spoken about is in here. It'll help you understand it and hopefully motivate you to start planning a little bit before the last minute.com um, because this, yeah, the earlier you start planning for, for this time. And, and let's also just let me sum off by saying don't call it retirement. And I think that's that's probably part of the issue is trying to convince a 30-year-old to plan for retirement. What you want to do is you plan for choices, plan for life, um, have choices in the future. You don't want to be, uh, you know, um, having to stay behind that desk for, for eternity. You want to have choices and flexibility. So think about it a little bit differently.